Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Center's Guide. My name is Tyler Fowler, and I have got two very special people with me today. But before we get into that, make sure you head on over to www.completecenters.com to get all of our episodes, a new one that we're going to release tonight about vaccinations, and the one we're going to release next week, the one that we're doing right now. So thank you guys for joining us. Please, 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 if you want to be a guest on the show, or if you want a specific topic talked about on the podcast, on the radio station, please email me at completecenter at gmail.com. With me, we are talking about New Covenant Theology, and I have Noah Chalaya and Stuart Brogdon uh, with me today. So, guys, how you doing? Hey, pretty good, Tyler. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're doing fine out here in uh, southeast Oklahoma on top of a little mountain. Sunny, got a fire in the stove in the living room. Oh boy, sounds fun. So everybody knows basically who's listening to the show, who Noah and myself are. So Stuart, why don't you take this time to just introduce yourself? Um, it kind of explain what we're going to be talking about today whenever it comes to New Covenant Theology, and just uh, why should people listen to what you have to say? Well, I was, a, uh, I was in an elder training program in a 1689 fellowship down in Houston, and I was teaching the 1689 Confession to people, and that caused me to study it quite a bit so I could answer questions, and it dawned on me while I was studying it that there's conflicts between what it says about the Mosaic Law and what the Bible tells new saints, you know, about how we should live, not under the law. And so, uh, you know, I got booted out of that and joined a couple of guys with the church plant and began preaching with them, and then got sent up to Oklahoma as a preacher at a church or got fired because they don't like the Bible, they want stories. And so that prompted me to write a book and study covenant theology and uh, the new covenant perspective shows it's a redemptive historical plan that uh, God put together. And the Bible is all about revealing that to people, who they are without him and who they are with him and who he is. And the sure. uh, basic New Covenant theology perspective is probably the best biblical theology perspective I've known. Absolutely. So, I, I and I've seen like how it lines up, just kind of because I really haven't studied systems, so to say, right? And the, really, the only one that I have is Calvinism in general, and it really the only soteriolo- or soteriology. Whenever it comes to, it, I haven't really studied eschatology um, as much as I have soteriology. Uh, whenever it comes to that. So it's always nice to have like these fresh perspectives out. And so, Stuart, how long have you been uh, studying New Covenant theology? About um, six years now. Okay. So this isn't, though, like a new concept, because I've heard, uh, you know, some of my Covenant theologian friends, they say, well, New Covenant theology is new. It's only 50 years old. Does this, is this teaching back in church history? Um, or because I don't think it's something new per se, is it? It's not because there are, um, you know, it's it's the same old argument. Um, but if you go study the Bible and early mm-hmm. writings, such as Justin Martyr and other people, you can yeah. see the same perspective. And it's uh, you know like we like correcting people. It's it's about the new covenant. It's theology of the new covenant. It's not new covenant theology. It's new covenant theology. Right, right, exactly. I was, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's, uh, I forget the YouTube channel now, Crowns and Something Ministries. Ah, uh, I forget. But 
um, anyway, long story short, that's what I was, that's what I thought new covenant theology was, was like a newer version of covenant theology. But like I said, I was listening to that uh, podcast yesterday and that's what exactly how he described it as was it's not new covenant theology. It's new covenant theology, the study of the new covenant. Um, so, and that's what you, you brought up Justin, Mar- uh, Martyr Stewart, and it's, I've been studying Justin these last couple months, and whenever I read um, his work and then lined it up with, you know, Blake's, um, uh, Blake White, <clears throat> because he he's one of the main proponents of this uh, system, right? Yeah, he is, but, you know, there, there's a guy down in the Caribbean named Randy Seaver and a partner of his from the 50s down in Colleen, Texas, Brian Tom. Okay. Now is that is that the same Randy Seaver that we have on Facebook? Just yes. to kind of put faces. Okay. Okay, that makes sense then. Ha. Huh. Right on. And then over well, in England, you've got uh, Fred Sargent and David Gay. Okay. And then John, uh, what John C. Resinger, he was a proponent uh, of theology as well. Yeah. Resinger. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of the solid guys. Yeah. And uh, sixteen okay. guys tell me he's dangerous. <laughs> right. Okay, so I mean, let's dig into it then. We for those, I guess, who don't know because <laughs> it's funny. I actually had a talk with a friend. I'm not going to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, but I asked him why did he believe that the Mosaic Covenant was still in effect today? And he had no idea what I was talking about. He said, well, what happened with the Mosaic Covenant was whenever the Jews rejected Jesus, and I said, whoa, 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 that has nothing to do, Jesus has nothing to do with the Mosaic Covenant in that sense. There wasn't a, Jesus is going to come in the Mosaic Covenant. And we, there, correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart, because I haven't really dug into the covenants individually yet, but is there a hint of Jesus coming in the law or um, what God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai? I know we have Deuteronomy 18, but is there anything else that, um, I know there's lots of types and shadows in there. How does New Covenant theology deal with that, per se? Well, he is the greater prophet that Moses was talking about. And he was mm-hmm. born in the Mosaic Covenant as a Jewish boy with those parents that were obeying the law of the Romans to take him to where the prophecy said he would be born. So he was born under the curse of the law, as Galatians put it, for his people. Mm-hmm. So whenever Jesus... Because I was actually talking to somebody, too, and they didn't believe that Jesus came to fulfill the law, the Mosaic law. And how would... Go ahead. Yeah, there's a big argument about whether or not he fulfilled the law. I've been watching that on Facebook between two brothers that are in the New Covenant uh, chant. And uh, it's, it's not real clear in Scripture that he did fulfill the law. I mean, he declared it... Uh, you know, in uh, Matthew 5, when he was given a preview of the kingdom of God to Jews, showing them what the true kingdom looked like in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, they didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Right. And, and see, I... Various, go ahead. Various ways to define the word fulfill. Bring it to completion or fill it up. And uh, sure. some rabbis that I've been reading say that fulfill means to do everything in, in obedience to the law. Mm-hmm. So you can argue that with people until your eyes turn blue and fall out. 
Right. No, I, I trust me. Well, we've been arguing Arminianism and Calvinism for, you know, 500 years. So it's not going to, I don't think, reconcile itself anytime soon. Yeah, that, that soteriology argument goes back at least to Augustine and Pelagian. Right, right, even before the Reformation. Um, so any, Go ahead. Yeah, no, so it goes all the way back, you know, to, to Paul and, uh, right. you know, and Jesus, you know, because you, you see Jesus quoted there in John's Gospel, uh, the most mm-hmm. Calvinistic Gospel of the four. Yeah. No, no, I agree. John 6, and, I mean, just all the way through John 1, you know, through, um, all the way through, really. But, um, so let's... Let's kind of transition to this because, like I said, I had a, you know a friend that was confused on exactly what the old and new covenants are. So, can you kind of explain, Stuart, for us what exactly? Well, first and foremost, what a covenant is, and then what exactly is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews talks about uh, whenever he says that the new covenant is better than the old one? Yeah. So you know, there's a big argument about what a covenant is. And some people within NCT say if the word's not used, it can't be a covenant. I think they're just allergic to the Presbyterian covenant of works. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, a covenant is an arrangement between two or more parties that is uh, basically sanctified, documented as such. And so the old covenant, in my view, and John Bunyan explained the Abrahamic covenant, I think it's essential that we understand that. Uh, is yeah. like a two-headed coin. you got one side that is covenant of circumcision that leads directly in and absorbed into the Mosaic covenant. And with mm-hmm. the Davidic covenant, in my view, that's the old covenant. Those three together hang together as the old covenant dominated by the Mosaic one. And in the new covenant, you see from the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, all nations and no conditions attached to that promise, that leads into the new covenant for all believers when Jesus cut that with his blood. And the only one that came out of the circumcision, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, was the promised seed who is the promised one of Abraham, uh, the, the greater prophet of Moses, and the son of David. And I've got a chart in my book that explains this, lays it out this way. And he came out of there and was put on trial and no fault was found in him so he was the lamb without blemish and he could give himself for others and the divine righteousness that is his by his nature is imputed to us as our sins were imputed to him and the new covenant is not equal to the new testament because you see a lot of old covenant life in the early parts of the new testament but the the new covenant is life in christ and all the saints are in him that's the new covenant. There's no false believers in the new covenant as there are in most local fellowships. Right, because that was something that kind of set the Israelites apart as well, right? Not, uh, and you please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but whenever the Israelites got together on the Day of Atonement, for example, and that sacrifice was for the covering of their sins, it never did away with sins, but it covered their sins for a year. That's why they had to do it over and over and over again. It never did away with sin. But is that so within that congregation, within that ecclesia, right? Is that, is there some that were, their sins were covered, and then unbelievers, like there are in the church, the local gathering today? Exactly. 
And okay. this is this is a key this is a key area that leads the Presbyterians astray because mm-hmm. they don't see a distinctive between the old and new covenant. They think they're one covenant with different administrators. And because they see that there are unbelievers in the covenant community of Israel, they say that bring all the unbelieving babies in and presume that they're in the new covenant and confirm them when they turn a certain age. And that's mm. the worst kind of presumption, in my opinion. Right, because see, in Jer- it would seem that in Jeremiah, you know, thirty-one, for example, that God is making a a complete, you know. He's contrasting between something old and something new, like a brand new thing. And I forget where it is in the Bible, um, talking about the new covenant, but it said it will be something like a woman protecting protecting a man. You know where I'm talking about whenever... Yeah. Okay. Where Where is that? Do you know off the top of your head, just out of curiosity? No, I don't know off the top of my head where that is either. Okay. But, but the idea behind it is it's something that's un... Unthinkable, right? Like you would never see, you know, uh, this woman, you know, that is a type and shadow and and its beautiful feminine qualities, protecting, taking the role of a man, right, and and protecting a man. You you don't see that type, but that's what God compares the new covenant to the old covenant. It's something completely different, and that's what I love about it because not only is it different, it's better. The writer of Hebrews says that this is a better covenant. Go ahead. Amen and amen. Because if, if we don't realize the, the awesome beauty and glory of what Christ did, we will underestimate, you know, the, the wretchedness that we lived in and were as an unsaved bunch of people individually. Right. And that's why right. I, I've been preaching on the New Covenant and teaching people about Christ is the Sabbath. It's not a day of the week. And I call that the weekly, spelled W-E-A-K-L-E-Y, day of rest. Mm-hmm. And so, the way I describe it in my book is that in the Old Covenant, you had people with a heart of stone that were given a law written on stone tablets, and they met yeah. in a stone temple to worship God, a stone temple that he never commanded be built. He permitted it and condescended to use it. And so that's the Old Covenant, and they say, well, it's chiseled and sown by the finger of God, so that's eternal. Well, let's see, Jeremiah three fourteen through 17 says that in the day when God gathers his people together, and there he, and he uses the two terms, Judah and Israel, to demonstrate mm-hmm. comprehensive gathering of his people, there will be shepherds that will teach the pe- his people his word, everyone will know God, and one neighbor will not have to tell another one, know God, and you will not think about the Ark of the Covenant. You will not know where it is. You will not think of it. You will not try to remake it. And what's in that Ark? That's the tablets of stone that will be forgotten. In the New Covenant, you have spiritual people with hearts of flesh on which are written the law of Christ, and they are the temple of God. And that's, that's the difference between the Old and the New. you got stone, and you got flesh. You got spiritually dead and spiritually alive. Right. Right. And I was listening to Deuteronomy the other day, just yesterday as a matter of fact, and one of the commandments was to circumcise your heart. 
and you cannot do that on your own. Flesh cannot do that. It's a spiritual. I, I, I I'm going to tell or teach my daughter whenever she's old enough to comprehend um, that you know it's like a heart surgery. God gives you a new heart. That's the circumcision of the new heart, and like the circumcision of the flesh was to signify the old covenant, new covenant. And, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm brand new to this. But isn't the circumcision of the heart the sign and the seal of the new covenant? Yes. And this is another yeah. thing I try to teach my Presbyterian brothers. You had the mm-hmm. sign, which is only a seal to Abraham, so you can't call it a sign and seal to the babies. But it was a, sure. it's, a, it's a requirement, it's a right that gets you into the old covenant, which you can't get into anymore because it's ended, was circumcised the flesh. And Moses almost got killed because he didn't have his son circumcised. And the entrance requirement to get into the new covenant has nothing to do with the flesh. It is, as you pointed out, what Moses told his people, circumcise your heart. Can't do that. Sorry, bud. The Spirit does that, and that's what's required for anybody to get into the new covenant. Now, it's accompanied with that act of obedience of water baptism, and the Presbyterians think that's the sign of the new covenant. Well, it's not, because you don't. it's not required to go onto the water. Sorry about sprinkling to get into the new covenant. No, you have to be circumcised of the heart by the Spirit. Absolutely, absolutely. So what part, let me ask you this, Stuart, what part does baptism play? Because in the uh, in, in the video I was watching, and I, I, I can't for the life of me remember what channel it was. I think it was Cross to Crown Ministries. Does that sound familiar? Are you familiar with that? I know those guys, uh, Doug Gooden and Chris Fales. Okay, I think it was uh, I think it was one of them that said it. But um, anyway, long story short, they said that basically baptism was your confession of faith. Not only is it a public confession of faith, but it's likened to your actual confession of faith. And, and how, how does that work exactly? Or, or what, in your opinion, is baptism in the New Covenant? Well, I've, I've got a series that uh, Greg Nichols recorded in 1983 on examining whether infant baptism is biblical. And in that, in that series that he did, he summed it up, and I was listening to it yesterday real well. Water baptism has a confessional uh, substance to it. You are confessing Christ as Lord. You, you are also demonstrating that you are identifying him in his death, because going under the water signifies being drowned. And Christ was killed on our account, and coming up out of that signifies being resurrected as he was. But there's also this proclamation or declaration of your identification with him as well. So you confess him and you proclaim him as part of your baptism. Hmm. So that's so interesting because I always thought, and again, like I said, I stand correct on all these things, but I always thought that there that baptism was more than just a symbol. It was more than just a public confession of faith, right? That there was some kind of spiritual side to it. And I've been trying to figure it out now for a long time, and I don't, and I don't know if anybody can or um, if anybody has. But do you think that there's a spiritual side to baptism in the sense of there might be like a spiritual side to the um, the Lord's Supper? Well... In the sense that there's spiritual truth being communicated in a sure. visual fashion, yes. 
but is there some sacramental aspect to the ordinances? I say there is not. Okay. Yeah, so we'll kind of flush that out then. What do you mean by sacramental? Um, um, sacramental is a term that conveys that there's something uh, spiritual working through a religious rite. Okay, okay. So in in the sense of, could that go as far as transubstantiation? I mean, would that be an extreme? Or is there, like, I don't know how to explain it, but, like, different levels, I guess, and transubstantiation being the extreme on that? Well, yeah, it's an extreme example of it, but so is, uh, you know, belief in infant baptism playing a role. Because um, uh, Jeffrey Johnson, a friend of mine, a preacher in Arkansas, wrote a book called The Fatal Flaw of the Theology Behind Infant Baptism. And I I have borrowed from his, and that, and I copied what he wrote out, eight reasons historically that people have identified for what they call baptizing their infants. And they're all based on what I call superstition. Because, see, all false religions require man to do something to be right with God. Right. And when, the, when you hear the word godparents, those are people that in the papist cult stand in the place of the infa, uh, baptized infant and their faith is what gets applied to the infant to forgive him of his sin of Adam that he's born with. They believe in the depravity of man, but that's washed away with the sprinkling. Sure. And that happens whenever the infant is, like, washed or sprinkled. They would say that they're total depravity. Have they they received some kind of grace at that point as well? Right. And see, that, that, you know, when when, uh, Constantine allegedly got saved, he waited until he was on his deathbed to get baptized because he he didn't want to be encumbered with living a life of repentance and holiness. He wanted mm-hmm. to do whatever he wanted to do and get made right with God before he was dead, because baptism saves you. Mark said so. Yeah, yeah, Mark. And that's antinomianism at its best, right? I mean, because, or at least it stems from it, because I, there was a charge, I think, to New Covenant theology that you guys were antinomian. It, what what was going on with that? Well, see, and I've been studying up on that. Um, I've been challenged to a, a debate, a hardcore yeah. on this topic. And mm-hmm. see, antinomianism, at its essence, means against law. Right. And it doesn't mean against the moral law, if there is one identified in the Bible. Uh, it mm-hmm. just means against law. Now, that's an interesting phrase because that's the definition of sin in the Bible. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness means without law, not against law or in violation of law. It means without law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Paul said those are without the law of Moses. That's the same terminology. And so to be an antinomian is to be, in first century terms, a Gentile. Right. A person who knows that there is a God but denies it and suppresses his knowledge with his unrighteousness and refuses to submit himself to what he knows of truth. That's an antinomian. Now, Basically Romans 1. Yeah, because people that are against law, they refuse to live. It's an anarchist perspective. You know, there right. is no law over me. Right. That's antinomianism. 
Right. It's a failure to submit to authority. I mean, really, yeah. and that is part of, I mean, that is like the number one thing in Christianity is that we bow the knee to Christ as Lord. And and it's not, you know, and, and I agree because we were talking earlier about the way people use the word church, right? And, and I'm that way too. I have my pet, fee- my pet peeves, you know, and... and Oh, I, I mean, I, I really do. I really do, but I don't want to rabbit trail on them. So, let, um, so let's. Uh, how would because I had a discussion. I don't know if you've listened to it or not with a Seventh Day Adventist on the topic of can a Christian lose their salvation? But we, in our you know personal talks, um, we was talking about the Sabbath, and he asked me, and I, to be honest, I didn't know how to answer it at the time because this was a while back. But he said, "Are the Ten Commandments still in effect today?" and I didn't know, you know, so I would think, well, yeah, of course. He said, well, how do you keep the Sabbath then? And I didn't know how to answer it, right? So, but then again, like I said, I didn't know anything about New Covenant theology. I didn't know there was such a thing at the time um, because I hadn't put every, all these different things together. Um, but what, like I said, what I find about New Covenant theology, just a, just a parenthesis, is that it is Christ-centered. And I love that fact, you know what I mean? Because it's not focused on anything else but Christ. And, and it reminds me of 1 Corinthians whenever Paul said, I want to preach nothing, no fancy arguments, no great philosophies, Christ and him crucified. And it's not because New Covenant theology is New Covenant theology, is why I, I find it so fascinating. It's the fact that it is Christ-centered. But with that being said now about the Sabbath, is the since the Old Covenant, how would you say that the Old Covenant is quote-unquote done away with? Is it done away with, or is is there different terms that we can use um, to be more more biblically accurate? Well, Paul said that that law, with all of its ordinance against us, Ephesians 2, has been abolished. Mm-hmm. Christ said he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. How do we reconcile those? Here, and I was reading right. a book. I, let's see, I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember the name of it. Um, Paul and the Law by Brian Rosner, I think it is. Uh, he says, and I think he makes a compelling argument, the Mosaic Covenant was done away with as a legal code. And you know what's what's bound up in that legal code? You go read the life of national Israel in the Old Testament. What do you see? Mm-hmm. Man gathers mm-hmm. sticks on the Sabbath. What happens to him? Dies. He gets, he gets killed. A, man, a, a boy <laughs> speaks against his daddy and won't repent. What happens to him? Take him outside and stone him to death. You know, there's penalties for breaking the law. That's the point. And even those Christian Sabbatarians, they do never, and like some radical reconstruction theologists, but they don't, (laughs) by and large, ever bring the penalties of the law in. They don't believe the law is binding either. Look at the way 1689 and Westminster guys practice their Christian Sabbath. It has nothing to do with what the Bible commands the Jewish people to do on the weekly Sabbath. Right. Right. So and, and they're, so, they're playing games with the law, and so the right. law as a legal code is done away with. And what I do is with these reformed guys, I say, how do you interpret Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a promise directly to us because we weren't held in captivity for those many months waiting for this to happen. I said, exactly right. But we learned about ourselves and the character of God and His faithfulness to His people. Right, right. So why don't you mm-hmm. interpret the Mosaic Covenant and the Decalogue that way? Well, because that's mm. God's moral law. Where does it say that? And then off we go. Mm. 
See, because you're right, because that's a covenant theologian's... I mean, you have to have that in covenant theology, am I right? Where you separate the entire Mosaic law, the law that was given to Moses, between Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy, the end of it. All of that law fits together and is together. There's no separation between moral law, um, ceremonial law, and civil law. I mean, the Bible never makes those um, distinctions, right? See, what I discovered when I was studying the covenants, researching for the book that I wrote on Baptist, being Baptist, is it dawned on me that rather than come up with this tripartite, and I've already concluded it's not right, uh, right. doing some research on it, I come up with this this idea that I find is embraced by a lot of people in the NCT world. You look at the covenant context of what you're reading, and you figure out what its application and meaning was to those people, and you got to ask yourself, am I in that covenant or not? And it's a basic hermeneutic, but it's, like Spurgeon said, the biggest problems people run into is they don't understand the covenants. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it gets back to, if you're in the new covenant, all things are new. Old things have gone away. And we have to understand what that means in the person and work of Christ. Right. Right. It wasn't until I started actually studying the covenants. And again, I haven't studied a lot, you know, detailed study that, you know, Stuart has or many other great, great, great godly men have studied. Um, that's why I wanted to bring somebody on who actually knew about the topic at hand instead of me just trying to figure it out. Um, but it's it, it's very nice to have that. Um, so I appreciate you coming on and, and doing this, Stuart. I, I really, really do. Um, so let me together, brother. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Um, so I want to get on the topic of federal headship. Now, I know that is a covenant theology um, term. Is that true, or does New Covenant theology have federal headship as well? Well, sure, because the Bible talks about federal headship. Uh, you're sure. in Adam, you're, or you're in Christ. That's federal headship. Sure, absolutely. So my question is then, and this is kind of a personal one, is that First John two one talks about Jesus being our advocate, and I, I I love that word the you know Parakletos, and it Thayer writes this he says one who pleads another's cause before a judge a pleader counsel for uh, for defense like a lawyer legal assistant and advocate and then he continues one who pleads another's cause with one an intercessor and he says of Christ in his exaltation at God's right hand pleading with God the Father. For the pardon of our sins. And obviously, in John 17, Jesus is praying for his people, his sheep, his covenant, Gentiles and Jews. There is no, uh, and that's what I like about New Covenant theology as well, too, is that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? So with that, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead with what you were saying. Oh, no, basically, my, so my question is, whenever it comes to federal headship and, and, and Jesus being a paraclete, is that what John was teaching in, maybe not necessarily in that context, I think there's a little bit there, but is that federal headship in a, or in a nutshell, anyway? Um, as Jesus being our advocate, I don't think it's federal headship. Okay. Uh, you know, him being an advocate, clearly he's, he's on our side. But headship means that we are represented by him in a uh, in a different sense, if you will. Okay. Um, and I think I think in Romans five, Paul is getting at this new headship idea, because mm -hmm. I mean we don't have a strong identity in our minds. 
you know, you're born an Adam. Well, I never knew the guy, you know. And, and the, the Pelagian string is strong in our nature. We don't like the idea that we're slaves to sin. Right. And don't even like that word, so I'll go Rick Warnish and just call it a herd, a hang-up, or a habit. Right. But if we don't understand that we were in Adam, and we were doomed to hell, not knowing whether Adam is a sheep or a goat, I'm not going to say that because I don't know, but I know if you're in Adam, that's not a good place. <laughs> right. And if, and if you don't get raised by the Spirit to new life in Christ, and see, that's our identity. Benjamin Keach is an old Baptist guy that I love because he was always talking about our union with Christ as our all in all. Because we don't have anything if we're not in Christ. And he is our federal head. Because he's our federal head, he's our advocate. But I don't think those two roles are the same. One is simply a matter of identity, and the other is a role that he takes on our behalf. And, and, I, I, you know, and it's one of those things we have in the Christian world, the word hope is that assurance of what's going to happen and him being an advocate pleading for us. It's a, it's, we're, we're already glorified in Romans 8, 28. Uh, you know, right. It's not a might happen, it's a done deal. Exactly. We have the guarantee of our inheritance, and, and you're absolutely right. To receive that inheritance, we have to be united to the one who earned the inheritance, right? Because Jesus lived perfectly for a reason. And that reason was righteousness, right? That's that's what I love about federal headship is because not only it, – it's not this, you know, well, that's not fair for me to be charged with Adam's guilt. And I, I want to read Romans 5, the, the, j- just the passage that talks about that, um, because it's not like we're just pulling this, you know, out of our hats and saying, oh, well, this is what New Covenant theology teaches, but this isn't what necessarily the Bible says. No, I want to read Paul's own words. He says, So then, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but there is no accounting for sin when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam, who is a type of the coming one, transgressed. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? And the gift is not like the one who sinned, for judgment resulting from the one transgression led to condemnation, for the gracious gift from the many failures led to justification. Now here we go. For if by the transgression of the one man death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, so too, through the one righteous act, came righteousness leading to life for all people. And it's, it, it, it continues, actually, but, um, but it, it's not this. I, I mean, you see it so clearly in verse 18. Just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, not many, not our personal transgressions. Adam's transgression is what made us sinners and, and, and accountably held as sinners. Because, and people will say, that's not fair, that's not fair. And I gotta say, if that's not fair, then you cannot be credited.
We don't want fairness. It doesn't work like that. No, because we don't want fairness. We want mercy. And exactly. if we demand fairness on, well, I didn't sin with Adam, then you can't claim mercy. You, you're exactly. going to get you're going to get justice. Exactly. Exactly. Because what is fair? What would be fair is that we pay for our own sins. That's fair. And you're you're absolutely right. We demand mercy. But the problem is, is that so many people, and and I hate it too, because, I mean, it's right there so clearly in the Bible. People get caught up in emotions and heartstring, you know, feelings. And I'm not saying that feelings are a bad thing, but we just can't lean on those feelings. It's not fair for God to condemn some and, and save others. And we got and you know, the, just the excuse, we have free will, we have free will. And, and it's such an idol, I think, because you don't even realize that God, God, you cut out God's free will, if you want to say, you know, anything about free will. And, and and make man in God's place at that point. And, you know, I'm ranting, but, but it's just the Bible is so clear whenever it comes to these type of things. And whenever you kind of systematize them like we have here, it, it's it, it's just so clear. And, you know, I, I love it. I absolutely do. When, when I was uh, first up here preaching, when they interviewed me before they asked me to serve them, I, you know, I was asked, well, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I yeah. said, well... I don't like that terminology because I think it spends uh, our, it focuses back on a decision we may have made. I like the right. phrase "perseverance of the saints." The saints we persevere because we are we are preserved by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and we will persevere because of Him. And so, yeah, we we cannot fall away. And I was asked if I believed in predestination. I told them I can't help but believe it because I see it, and I rattled off you know Ephesians and Romans and Revelation and all over the place and yet they they called me to serve i started preaching through hebrews like i said i was going to and i called wayne grudem out of the systematic theology in one sermon and that he can come to me and says you called wayne grudem he's a he's a calvinist i said well i quoted adrian rogers too he wasn't a calvinist we can't have you here we don't like what you're saying if billy Graham don't approve of it neither do we wow And so, I, I wrote yeah, a book. I was weeping, not because they didn't want me, but because they had such a low view of the Bible. Right, right. It's like, you know, whenever I'm talking to, you know, just, I mean, anybody, and they try so hard to defend the system. Me and a buddy was talking about the other night that, you know, systems are in place of the Bible, you know, now, and, 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 I, and I hate to say it, but it's on both sides, you know what I mean, of the Calvinism, Arminianism, Roman Catholicism, whatever, it's the tradition, and it's not even about what the Bible says anymore, and, and I think that's becoming, you know, a, a big problem in, in, in the Christian age, but regardless, you know, about all that, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I hate it, but at the same time, you know, there's got to be, I think, systems in place for organization, and we don't see, you know, there there's a specific doctrine that the Bible teaches, and I, I forget who said it, but basically there has to be, you know, th- there has to be splits, because that's what separates true sheep from wolves, because the sheep will not follow the voice of a stranger. And whenever you have two people in quote, quote, you know, interpreting the Bible completely differently, I really think, you know, and I don't want to judge anybody by salvation by that, but 
I think you got a question. I mean, is, is there truth to that, Stuart, or what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I think it's true, and I, I think we have to be careful because we all have our own um, flawed theology in one area or another. Right. But, you know, I, I posted this on Facebook yesterday. Um, when, I, when I first, and I, I hate to bring it up again, but it's, it's relevant. When I first published my book, a, a, a librarian for a Dutch Reformed seminary asked if he could have a copy to review and have another copy to put in his library. He's gonna, he hadn't reviewed my book yet, but I got contacted by somebody that's a friend of his. Hey, we just published a book on the 400th anniversary of Dort. Could we have you review it? I said, sure. And they sent me the book. In that book, one of their presenters said that, you know, the canons of Dort said that the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism are in complete harmony with the Bible. There's nothing in those confessions and catechisms that is contrary to the scriptures. Mm. Those confessions and that catechism teach infant baptism, which mm. is not in the Bible, no matter how you look at it. Sure. You can come up with a theological argument for it, but you can't find it there. Right. And in the next page, this author said that Reformed churches must remember and get back to understanding that those con that confession and that catechism, those are the rule of life. Mm. Mm. It is, wow. in fact, those documents that is their magisterium. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because whenever yeah. you get... we got to Go be ahead. part of that. You know, because right. we got 1689 guys that are falling into that because they're so in love with that confession. They haven't studied the history behind those confessions. And, you know, they just assume, like the Westminster guys tend to do, that the men who wrote that, those documents had it all together, and that was the end of all. Had one guy tell me that he thought the 1689 was the sum of sound doctrine that Paul wrote about to Timothy. Mm. And, and that, I think you see the extreme with that whenever, you know, I mean, not to not to say that these guys will ever get like this, God forbid it, but I think you see the extreme of the exaltation of doctrine in, right. in Rome. I mean, you, you just see it there, and you see what it, you know, turns into. Spurgeon had a good perspective. He published the 1689, he said, this is not should be burdensome from you, but it helps, so don't let it, don't let it get you tied up in knots. Right. It's a healthy attitude towards it. Amen. Amen. Exactly. And it is. It's a tool to help us to understand the Bible better. It's not to replace the Bible at all. You know, that God, man shall live not on bread alone, but every every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. You know, and, and so for the last 10 minutes, Stuart, I, I kind of want to transition into, I think, the most important thing in life. And I try to, whenever I bring somebody on, I try to get to this, but it seems like it never does because time just goes so quick. But since I know what time we're actually ending today, I can start a little bit early. Um, if there was anyone listening right now about, you know, just they don't know really where they're at all they know is that they are missing something they maybe they don't know exactly what that is maybe they've never heard of jesus in their life but they know they look out in this world and they see something is wrong i'm part of that problem and i need help how would you talk to that person like i said in the last 10 minutes that we got how would you what would you say to that person who who's listening that's thinking that right now i've got a colleague at work that is that person. 
And I gave her a copy of the Bible, and I pleaded with her, open to the Gospel of John, and sit down and read a chapter a day, and ask God to give you understanding, and see who you are as you read that. Because there is coming a day of accounting, and whether you believe in God or not, he will judge every deed and word and thought, no matter how secret you may think it has been. And if that doesn't make you shudder, that's proof you don't know who he is. So plead with him for mercy, read his word, and cry out to him if you see yourself, as Nicodemus did, as one who doesn't understand what does it mean to be born again. We have to go through and understand why did Jesus come and live and die and be raised? Because if there's not a reason for his actions, then we can just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But since he did, we'd better understand why. Why, like, like I said in, in the last you know couple minutes that we got, why is that exactly? Yeah, because the the accounting that comes there there is a suffering under the wrath of God for everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the only thing that can keep one from suffering under the stern rod of God's wrath. And you may live 80 years and think that's a long time, but it's but a dot on the timeline. The only safe place is to have faith in Christ. And the only way that you can have that is if Christ comes and makes you new. And if you keep on hardening your heart towards him, he will have no part in you. So I plead with people, come to Christ, because Jesus really did come to save sinners and there is hope in no other than him read about him and cry out to him for mercy amen and some people i mean let's just be honest some people are going to find that message foolish and i'm here to tell you right now if you're still listening and you're that person you find that message just absolute ignorant and only somebody, you know, with half of a brain could even think it because I used to think that way. I really did. And hear me whenever I say this. If you don't have ears to hear the gospel, please hear me. You're the person who's perishing. You're the person who is going that direction, who's on the wrong path completely. Even if you're doing what you think are good things, they are not they are not enough to get you into heaven, quote-unquote, or to earn favor with God. I used to be that person. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit enlightened my thinking, and not only enlightened it, but changed it, and enlightened my heart and gave me a new heart, gave me a heart of flesh, took out the heart of stone, and energized me in such a way that it literally gave me rebirth. I did not make myself become born again. I didn't ask God for forgiveness, and that made him save me. Salvation does not work like that. If I can talk to anybody, hear me out, please. It does not work like that. The problem is, is that that gives us a reason to boast. I did. I asked for forgiveness. That's why God saved me. No, it's not. The reason God saves anybody is because he loved them before the foundation of the world ever, ever, ever existed. 
and he chose them. He will bring them. Go ahead. He loved, we loved him because he loved us first. There's no other way around it. Exactly. And it's not like, you know, and, and this is just what I see whenever I read the Bible. I don't see people starting out neutral and God saying, yep, you get to go to heaven and you go to hell. It's not like that. The world is condemned already. We are sinners in Adam. And before we was ever born, if you want to look at it like this, we were sinners. I mean, it just, it goes all the way back. And sinners deserve hell. No matter what, God is the one who gets to determine the boundaries. God is the one who gets to determine the covenant. God's the one that gets to determine all of these things. And who are we to say, that's not fair? Nothing God does is unjust. Nothing. He can't. Amen. So what I'm saying is, please, if you're that person that say this foolishness, there's no way Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. I promise you that, and he rose from the grave, and 500 people saw him, and they wrote about him, and he's the most talked about person in history. There's not enough evidence to make one born again. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and did so many miracles in front of people, and they still didn't accept him. It makes me wonder, and it makes my heart cry, like, why? Why didn't these people accept? And Jesus said this. He said, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. If that frightens you, if you're listening and that frightens you, then cry out to him because chances are you're not a wolf if you're crying out to God. I mean, because there's ways. I mean, I I really do believe it. In 1 John, I really think the subtitle to that, instead of it just saying 1 John, I think it should say under it in like parentheses, how to know you're a Christian, right? I mean, like, it gives us that if you love the brethren, you know that you have passed from death to life, or, or darkness to light, or death to life, whatever it is. But there's all of these certain things. I write these things to you so that you may know and have confidence, you know, that you are Christ's. And it's like, you know, we can have an assurance. And I really, really see, you know, the Bible teaching that that assurance is by faith. Faith in Christ is what unites us to him. And how we, I mean, I don't know if this is correct terminology, but how we are grafted into the vine, that it's through faith, and that faith is something that only God can give. And so, I mean, I, I, if you're in that position, I mean, I, like I said, I don't know the biblical terminology, but it's like I would cry out to God, if this affected me, if that message affected me, to a point where it's like, I don't know what to do, I need help, then ask for it. God says he, you know, you evil people who know how to give your children good things, what makes you think God is not going to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask him. So, I mean, that's that. I mean, that's all a person can do, right, Stuart? I mean, we got, let's see, we got all, six, all mi- that God, six minutes. All that God has chosen will come to Christ, and he will never, ever cast out anyone who comes to him. Yeah. Amen. Actually, you know what? I want to read John 6 in the last couple minutes because I think it's so it, it, it's so beautiful because it's true, and it's Jesus' own words, right? It, 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 it's the discourse, it, it's the bread of life discourse. Like I said, I just want to read it in the last couple minutes. It says, when they found him, so, G, so you got these people who are following Jesus, 
and, and they're they're seeking him because they're hungry. We'll find this out later. He just got done feeding, I think, five thousand of them, and so they're, it's the next day, and they're seeking him. So he says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth: you are not looking for me, not because you saw miracles and signs, but because you ate all the loaves of bread you wanted. Do not work for the food that disappears, but for the food that remains to eternal life, the food which the Son of Man will give you for the Father or for God the Father has put his seal of approval on him. So when they said to him, What must we do to accomplish the deeds God requires? Jesus replied, This is the work of God, to believe in the one whom he sent. In Acts sixteen the Philippian jailer asks Paul, he comes running and trembling after this earthquake, and he comes running to Paul, and he falls down on his knees, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's not because you asked. It's because of all of these things that God has done for us. When you look, and I, like I said, I love covenant, New Covenant theology, because it does look at the covenants. And whenever you put salvation in a covenant world, like if you look at salvation through covenant lenses, so to say, you see the personal relationship that God choosing before the foundation of the world, a people that Jesus himself would come and die for and take their sins, right? I mean, that's part of the new covenant is the actual taking and doing away of sins and the actual imputation of righteousness. One thing Adam could not give us was righteousness. He could give us sinlessness all day long, but I think, you know, and, and you can add to this, you know, if you want to, Stuart, but I think that's what makes the New Covenant so much better than the Old, is because not only do we have sinlessness, we will have righteousness, and we have that righteousness right now. And see, this is why I hate when people say that uh, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. No, it's much, much, much better than that. Mm-hmm. Because Adam, before the fall, was without sin, and yet there he was. He sinned, and he died with him. And so it's... Mm-hmm. it's it's forgiven. It's righteous mm-hmm. in Christ. It's a lot better than just being without sin. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. Actu- I've actually heard it explained like this: just as if I've never sinned, just as if I'd always been righteous. That's just a lie from uninformed people. <laughs> uh, but but no, there is a righteousness that that in Adam, even if he'd never sinned, we we would not have. Right? Is, is that true? Absolutely. Okay. Because, so, you know, they talk about the impeccability of Christ. He was not able to sin. Adam had the ability to sin. And in Christ, you know, it is not us, it is sin in us. And in the glorified state on the new earth, no ability to sin. None. Zip, zada. That's better than Adam. That's Christ's exactly. likeness. Our union with Christ is all. And that's, you know, that's part of the inheritance, part of why, you know, part of the reason that God predestined us, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of a son so that he would be the firstborn among many, many brothers, like more numerous than the stars of the sky. And it's it's just, it's so cool. So, Stuart, in the last two minutes... Where, if people want to listen to more about covenant, New Covenant theology, or if they want to hear you more, where can people find you? And you, you, you talked about a couple books that you had. Uh, go ahead, um, advertise if you want to. Okay. Um, if anybody's interested, I wrote a book called Captive to the Word of God, a particular perspective on the Reformation and covenant theology. It's in Kindle, EPUB, paper, at Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. 
and uh, I, I write some stuff and post things that I preach on a Google blog called Breadcrumb, Breadcrumbs from the Word of God, and I'm also editing and publishing old Baptist books, um, and you can find information about that on my blog, and you can find the books on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble, definitely, definitely go check that out. Um, man, I want to thank you for coming on. Like, I, I, I really appreciated this. Like, this definitely helped me a lot more. And I, I plan on talking to you a lot more, Stuart, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh, I, I love talking with you, brother. Yes, uh, I, and I love it too. Like, I, this is iron sharpening iron, and you can't get it any any better than this. I love it. Um, so like I said, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, Noah didn't get a talk, but we will, um, maybe next time Noah will have to get on next time and talk, but thank you guys for uh, listening and make sure you check us out next time. Head on over to www.completecenters.com to check out all the other episodes. See you guys next week.